Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's just before dawn on Monday the 16th of December 1929 near the small town of Brankston in the Hunter region of New South Wales. And as a pipe band plays, thousands of coal miners are marching dusty country roads to confront the scabs who've been brought in to restart the Rothbury Colliery. These are men who are used to doing dirty and dangerous jobs underground to support themselves and their families. But since March this year, they've been unable to earn a living because they've been illegally locked out of their workplaces. The reason? The miners refused to accept a 12.5% wage cut and reduce conditions that were dictated to them by the mine owners with the approval of the federal and New South Wales state governments. Over nine long months, these unionists, knowing their industry is already in decline and their futures are uncertain, have played their part in trying to find a compromise. But at every juncture, they've been frustrated by mine owners who are ignoring the law of the land to guarantee the profits they make from digging it up. As for the conservative politicians backing these mining magnates, well, Why waste an opportunity to break one of the most powerful unions in Australia? During the lockout, miners have not only struggled to put food on their tables and to pay rent and mortgages, but they've also endured a campaign of brutality waged by Sydney City Police sent to the region in the name of maintaining order. Now, with the New South Wales government determined to reopen the Rothbury mine with non-union labour protected by a small army of police, these marching thousands of unionists are arriving at camp outside the colliery where 2,000 more unionists are already gathered. 
They're here to hold a mass picket, though some in their ranks want to go further to ensure Rothbury doesn't resume operations. One way or the other, these 5,000 men are here to fight for their livelihoods. But after a brutal clash with police, some will end the day fighting for their lives and one of their number will lay dead. I'm Michael Adams and this is the first part of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Battle for Rothbury. White people's first discovery of coal in the Hunter region came in early 1791. Two days after fleeing Port Jackson in Governor Arthur Phillips' cutter, legendary convicts William and Mary Bryant and other escapees came ashore on a beach near what would become Newcastle. There, they found coal as good as any in England, which they used to cook meals before continuing their epic ocean voyage to Timor. Over the next four decades, the colonial government would make half-hearted attempts to exploit coal in the Hunter region. It wasn't until the early 1830s that the powerful Australian Agricultural Company, which had also been given a monopoly over coal in the area, started mining efficiently. But in 1843, AA Co, as it was known, was challenged by upstart Scottish immigrant brothers James and Alexander Brown, who began mining coal at Four Mile Creek near East Maitland. The Browns fought legal battles for their right to mine and eventually emerged as unlikely winners in what was a David and Goliath battle. Soon, J&A Brown, as their company was known, became a Goliath of the coal industry in its own right, establishing dominance in production of the black gold that was increasingly being used to fuel Australia's growing industries. During the 1850s, the Browns supplied the Hunter River Steam Navigation Company and opened or acquired numerous mines. Most notable was the Minmi Pit, which they bought in 1859 for £60,000 and which by 1862 was producing more than 100,000 tonnes of coal every year. Just as the family business had been born at Four Mile Creek, so too was James Brown's eldest son John in December 1850. At age 14, John Brown started working for his dad, learning every part of the business from the front office to the coalface. Later on, he went to China, the United Kingdom and the United States to study the industry. In 1882, aged 31, his father made him the company's general manager and five years later, he took full control of J&A Brown. John opened new mines, including the huge Palor Main and Richmond Main collieries, and he modernised equipment and drastically increased output. He also sought to control every part of production and distribution. He imported locomotives and built private railway lines to transport his coal to his wharves at Newcastle Harbour. There, his coal was loaded onto his ships, which were guided to sea by his tugboats and sailed for his depots on distant shores, where coal was sold under contracts that he'd personally negotiated on his many overseas business trips. In addition to mining, John Brown bred racehorses that he registered under the pseudonym J. Barron, with the most famous of his thoroughbred nags being 1909 Melbourne Cup winner Prince Foot. 
When he wasn't buying up horses, the Baron, as he was nicknamed, was buying, breeding and showing prize fowls. Cole, colts and chooks, these were his passions. A 1923 cartoon showed John Brown, dressed in trademark black suit and bowler hat, towering over a collection of racehorses and locomotives, steamships tucked under each arm, exotic fowls in a cage held in one hand. The cartoon's caption read, quote, The coal baron returns to town with a few odd articles he has collected during his travels. And the cartoon was no exaggeration. On one such trip, the Baron reportedly spent £1 million buying up Big, which, adjusted for inflation, comes out today at about $80 million. But while John Brown was one of Australia's best-known men, he was also one of its least-known. He hated publicity, and journalists at the time were said to be lucky to extract a single usable quote from the man whose gruff standard response to any newspaper inquiry was that his business was no one else's business. Of course, such secrecy only made him more fascinating. Who was this millionaire, very likely Australia's richest man, who lived in a relatively modest house in Newcastle and kept an office there that, in keeping with his dour Victorian persona, was kept gloomy by his refusal to connect it to electricity until 1927. To be fair, there were stories, acknowledged even by some of his critics, that John Brown could be personally generous. But his reputation? That was built on the quality of his mercilessness. And that was best demonstrated in 1924, when he abruptly closed his Minmi mine and threw 2,000 men out of work. The official company line was that Minmi was too expensive to keep running. Miners who worked there, though, had a different story. They said the closure came after one of their number was killed on the job. As was their custom, they planned to take an unpaid day to attend his funeral. But John Brown had a steamer waiting to be loaded with coal. So his managers offered the men a day's pay to do half a day's work to ensure the ship could get away from the wharf on time. When they refused, John Brown shut the mine. However it happened, the closure turned Minmi Village which was home to 4,000 people and bustling enough to support 11 hotels into a ghost town virtually overnight. By the late 1920s, about 15,000 Miners' Federation members worked at about 100 coal mines in the Hunter region. 10,000 of these men were employed by members of the Northern Coal Owners' Association to which John Brown belonged. Just two of the Baron's big mines, Richmond, Maine and Palore, Maine, accounted for 2,500 men. And the closest these workers came to the Baron's pastimes of breeding thoroughbred horses and chooks was betting a few bob at the races and having roast chicken for dinner. Miners laboured under tough conditions. Men, along with boys in their early teens, went to their jobs before dawn, some riding bikes, but many walking two or three miles to their pits. In hobnail boots, wielding picks and shovels, and wearing cloth hats onto which oil or tallow-burning headlamps were hooked, they walked down, down, down to their work, which was sometimes carried out knee-deep in water. 
Men could shovel up to 20 tonnes of coal a day. At the end of their shifts, faces and bodies blackened, lungs heavy with dust, they slogged their way back out of the mine, which, after an exhausting day's work, always felt far steeper than it had going in. Through their union, the Miners' Federation, the men in 1921 had won good wages and conditions that were fixed under a federal award. Their pay was higher than that of the average Australian working man. But in 1928, the average Hunter Region Coalfields miner worked just 168 days of the year, with one-third of men subsisting on less than the basic wage. This was a period of industrial tension, and frequent work stoppages did cost the men money. But the main reasons for their underemployment were the coal industry's serious structural problems. John Brown and other owners had overcapitalized, increasing the cost of production at the same time that coal mined elsewhere in the world was becoming cheaper as industrialising countries developed their own pits and worked them with what was then known as coolie labour. And in Australia, transporting coal was also more expensive than it needed to be, partly because shipments had to be made by steamer because all of the states had different rail gauges. Coal was also now competing with the rise of oil and hydroelectricity. All of that meant that demand was slackening and the cost of coal had to be brought down for the industry to survive and for coal owners to maintain their profits. The big question was how? Though the coal baron John Brown was rarely outspoken, one remark he made regarding this situation did make it into the newspapers in May 1928. He was quoted as saying, Whether striking or working, the miners will have to go back to the conditions of 1914. It should be noted that the Baron's after-tax income in 1927 was £123,000, which is about $10 million today. John Brown made this statement, and that money, at a time when Hunter Region miners were increasingly being put out of work. The level of relief payments, which took the form of ration orders for food and essentials, painted a worsening picture. For the six months from July to December 1927, the value of relief payments had totaled just £600. For the corresponding period the following year, the bill hit £10,500. In 1928, coal production was 11.1 million tonnes against a wages bill of £6.5 million. That was too much the mine owners said at a conference in Canberra in early February 1929, and profits were down, they claimed, to less than two shillings per tonne before tax. This message found a receptive audience in Nationalist Party Prime Minister Stanley Bruce. He'd been in power since 1923 and, at the 1925 federal election, distinguished himself by becoming the first Prime Minister elected on a Red Scare anti-communist campaign. At the conference, the New South Wales Nationalist Premier Tom Bavin was also very receptive to the coal owner's message. Through the first half of February 1929, these men hammered out a plan that'd see the cost of coal production come down by four shillings per tonne. 
Here's how it would be achieved. The federal government would sacrifice two shillings per tonne by reducing charges. The owners would give up one shilling per tonne profit. And miners' wages would be cut 12.5%, the equivalent of one shilling per tonne. To rescue a valuable industry, maintain reasonable profits and protect thousands of jobs, this sounded like an equitable proposition. But there were several major problems. An obvious issue was that the federal government foregoing two shillings per tonne amounted to a taxpayer subsidy to the coal owners. Another was that everyone was just going to have to trust these coal owners about how much profit they were making because they weren't opening their ledgers for anyone. But by far the biggest problem was that the miners, who hadn't been consulted, were working under that 1921 federal award and it still had one year left to run before any renegotiation. Under the law of the land, if the miners had wanted a pay rise before this expiry date, they would have had to go into arbitration with the government and the coal owners. And so if anyone was going to cut their wages and conditions, the same arbitration process would need to be followed. It was on this basis that the Miners' Federation refused the wages and conditions reduction foisted on them by the coal owners and the conservative politicians. On the 15th of February 1929, those 10,000 miners working for members of the Northern Collieries Owners Association got a letter in their pay envelopes. It read, quote, Take notice that my company, having decided to cease operations for the present, your services will not be required on or after March 2, 1929. You will please accept this as 14 days notice of termination of employment. In addition to the 10,000 unionists about to be kicked out of work, the Sydney Morning Herald estimated that another 5,000 workers would be indirectly affected. And the lockout would also hit businesses in towns like Cessnock, Curry Curry, Brankston, Greta, Rothbury and Newcastle, which depended on miners spending money. What's worth noting is that miners at collieries in the southern and western part of New South Wales and at other northern mines not owned by NCOA members were still working happily under their award wages, the bosses somehow still making a profit in the very same coal industry. The locked out miners, the owners and politicians said, could have their jobs back if they accepted the wage cut and if they accepted the reduced conditions, including that unions would have to cease all pit meetings and stoppages, and management would have the right to hire and fire without regard for seniority. It's important to remember that this wasn't a strike. The miners were willing to work under their legal award, but were being prevented from doing so by their termination and lockout. This situation meant that they were entitled to the government relief rations mentioned earlier. Further, miners from other areas contributed a very symbolic 12.5% of their own wages to help keep their comrades afloat financially. Yet, even with the dole and donations, the miners' situation was dire and they wanted a solution quickly. Just before the lockout, newspaper Smith's Weekly had published a pretty even-handed explainer of the coal industry's problems. But the newspaper concluded that a big obstacle to any solution was, quote, 
The miner today distrusts the boss so much that all the capitalistic arguments about economic necessity leave him cold. He works out the costs for himself and is satisfied that the profit added by the owner is excessive and that if any cut is required, it should be made there. The miner's position after the lockout was that owner profits should be independently reviewed. Then, if they were found to be as low as was claimed, they would take the wage cut and do their bit for the industry. What wouldn't be made public until it was far too late was that the mine owners were lying. They claimed the cost of coal production to them was 12 shillings 8 pence per tonne. In reality, it was 11 shillings 7 pence. The difference, 1 shilling and 1 penny, was more than what they wanted to cut from the miners' wages. And in terms of profit, while they said they were making less than two shillings per tonne before tax, they were actually making two shillings nine pence, which came down to two shillings three pence after tax. Using 1928's production of 11.1 million tonnes, quoted by Smith's Weekly, and this profit margin, it meant that the coal owners made in the vicinity of £1.5 million profit that year after tax, which is about $120 million today. No wonder nationalist New South Wales Premier Tom Bavin refused an independent inquiry into coal costs and profits. Instead, he promised a royal commission into the entire coal industry. But that was going to take a lot of time, and meanwhile, he said, miners should go back to work accepting the new wage and condition cuts. Federally, Prime Minister Stanley Bruce came under fire from the Labour opposition led by James Scullin. After all, Stanley Bruce's law and order government had taken a hard line on unionists who'd violated the harsher industrial laws they'd recently introduced. In late December 1928, Judge Lucan of the Arbitration Court had handed down a harsh new award for timber workers. Then, in early 1929, Judge Lucan fined Jack Holloway, Secretary of Melbourne Trades Hall Council, £50 for inciting timber workers to strike, and fined the Timber Workers Union £1,000 for similarly breaching the industrial laws. Why was it, Labor wanted to know, that John Brown wasn't being prosecuted? He'd broken the law by sacking workers and locking the coal mines. On Friday the 22nd of March 1929, the seemingly unthinkable happened when the Federal Attorney-General, John Latham, issued a summons for John Brown to answer a charge at Sydney's Central Police Court on the 10th of April. But Charlie MacDonald, chairman of the Northern Collieries Owners Association, lobbied Prime Minister Stanley Bruce on behalf of the Baron. The path to peace in the coal dispute, he argued, would be blocked if this prosecution of John Brown went ahead. Defying the advice of his own Attorney General, Prime Minister Stanley Bruce persuaded his cabinet to drop the charge against John Brown. The announcement of this reversal on the 8th of April caused outrage from the public, the miners, the Australian Labor Party and, most ominously for the Prime Minister, within the already divided ranks of his own Nationalist Party. As Justice Colin Davidson's Royal Commission into the coal mining industry got underway, the miners put a peace proposal to John Brown and the other owners. 
here's what it would entail. Owners' accounts would be independently examined. If profits were found to be less than two shillings per tonne, miners would agree to wage cuts to the order of one shilling per tonne. If profits were over two shillings per tonne, wage reductions would be proportionally less. And if profit was three shillings per tonne or more, there would be no wage reduction. The coal owners absolutely rejected this proposal. Sydney's Truth put it this way in its front page headline on Sunday the 16th of June 1929. Quote, Owners blundered in rejecting miners' offer. Truth's view of coal crisis. Men have done everything to bring about resumption, but owners adamant. Open mines on pre-lockout basis. Meanwhile, life for out-of-work miners and their families got tougher each day as winter deepened. Subsisting on rations and having rents and mortgages go unpaid was bad enough, but they were also subjected to a brutal harassment campaign by police supposedly sent to the coalfields to keep order. Premier Tom Bavin had already spent all of 1929 battling New South Wales's locked-out timber workers. And in these areas, his government had tried to break resistance by using police in flying squads, known to timber workers as basher gangs. Now, the government used the same tactics in the Hunter region against coal miners. In a 1986 ABC TV documentary, then elderly miners and their wives still got emotional describing how police savagely attacked people at will. Skeptics might dismiss these as the biased memories of unionists, but they were confirmed by an unlikely source in 1988, when former high-ranking New South Wales police officer Ray Blissett was interviewed by Stephen Rapley for the New South Wales Bicentennial Oral History Project. Quote, They were known among the timber workers as the Basher Gang, see, because they weren't above jumping out of a car and giving a couple of pickets a hiding somewhere if they were causing a bit of trouble. And if they objected to getting a bit of a thumping, they, that is the police, would say, don't you swear at me and lock them up for using indecent language. With an unapologetic laugh about these good old days, Ray Blissett added nuggets such as, quote, it's a bit rough, I know. And, quote, of course, today, if they did it, it'd be a royal commission. And, quote, in those days, they did it and they got away with it. The general in this war against the unions was the detested New South Wales Secretary for Mines and Minister for Forests, Reginald Weaver. Reginald Weaver's political record included an election in which his organisers were found guilty of electoral roll stuffing and allegations he'd framed communists in court and tried to use bribery to incite violence on coalfields. On the 8th of August 1929, at a meeting in his Blue Ribbon State seat of Neutral Bay, Reginald Weaver tried to strike a conciliatory, if draconian, note about the coal crisis when he said that he would stand for a rigid and ruthless attitude towards both miners and owners. But he left his supporters in no doubt as to what he really thought. Quote, We've got to take this metal of socialism in our hands and crush it to death. But 100 miles north of Neutral Bay, the harsh conditions that miners were enduring were only making many of them more radical. 
And the lockout's militants weren't just the men. Wives, sisters, mothers and daughters staunchly supported their husbands, brothers, sons and fathers. Here's one headline from the Cessnock Eagle about a meeting of the women's militant minority movement at Newcastle's Strand Theatre in May. Quote, No reduction. Women urge minors to stand firm. Demand for right to live. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When federal parliament resumed in August 1929, Deputy Opposition Leader Ted Theodore, nicknamed Red Ted, moved a no-confidence vote in Stanley Bruce's government over its hypocritical failure to prosecute John Brown. The government survived by four votes. But Prime Minister Stanley Bruce immediately doubled down that same month. Although he'd made federal arbitration a central plank of his government's policy platform, Bruce now abruptly backflipped in an effort to do an end run around all Australian unions by announcing that the federal government would withdraw from industrial arbitration. This came under the guise of his Maritime Industries Bill, which, with the exception of Maritime Industries, would hand arbitration powers back to the states. The result would be industrial chaos. That's because at this time, some 700,000 Australian workers were covered by hundreds of federal awards and agreements. On the 28th of August 1929, Red Ted thundered to the House of Representatives that the Prime Minister's bill was, quote, the most sweeping change in statutory law ever proposed in this parliament and, quote, a wreckers policy aimed at, quote, a wholesale assault upon wages and upon working hours that would surrender the welfare of a vast number of working people whose sole protection for many years has been the Federal Arbitration Court to the tender mercies of sweaters and potential sweaters. But it wasn't just the ALP gunning for the Prime Minister. Billy Hughes, member of the Nationalist government and former Prime Minister who'd had to make way for Stanley Bruce, now attacked his leader. On the 5th of September, he said the Maritime Industries Bill existed, quote, not because there is some great and powerful need for it to be done, but in order that the Prime Minister may save his face, that he may not be confronted with the ghost of that hideous blunder that he made when he withdrew the prosecution against John Brown. It is in that act of his that we must look for the genesis and find the explanation of the measure which is now before the Chamber. On the 9th of September, after 46 hours of continuous parliamentary debate, the Bruce government passed its bill by four votes. 
But the next day, Billy Hughes stood up in Parliament to move an amendment saying the Maritime Industries Bill should not take effect until it had been ratified by the Australian people, either via referendum or at an election. His amendment passed by one vote, forcing Stanley Bruce to call a snap federal election. Australians would be going back to the polls for the second time in less than 12 months. At the same time, September 1929, New South Wales Premier Bavin's government gave quasi-legal cover for police harassment of minors by passing the Unlawful Assembly Act, which gave the constabulary the power to break up pickets and protests and to forcefully disband any gathering of three or more people. As one miner ruefully noted decades later, this statewide law wasn't enforced in Sydney's wealthy eastern suburbs. In the federal election campaign of late September and the first half of October 1929, ALP leader James Scullin embraced the opportunity to portray the Bruce government as hypocrites who prosecuted working men but gave free passes to their capitalist cronies. Vote Labor and Prosecute John Brown read the slogan of one ALP poster that showed a prosperous-looking chap with a pipe smiling pleasantly. This was the miner under a new Labor government. Vote Labor and open the coal mines, the poster implored, promising, Labor will administer the law. Bruce was afraid to prosecute John Brown, who locked out the miners. And here's a particularly vivid newspaper ad, quote, a sinister plot against the people, beware of the attempt to smash wages. The Bruce government's record, it said, was increased tax, heavy deficits, widespread unemployment, prosecution of unions and exemption for John Brown. The Baron, who hated seeing his name in the newspapers for any reason, could only have been mortified that he'd become a central issue in a federal election. These ALP ads were approved by Red Ted, and he proved an energetic and vocal campaigner, particularly in regard to the lockout. On the 6th of October, just a week out from the election, he said, quote, If Labour were returned, the mines in the northern coalfields would be reopened in a fortnight. He told the leftist Labour Daily newspaper, quote, the John Browns of Australia must not be permitted to hold up the country to ransom. Red Ted said that either the owners would open the mines or, quote, the Labor government will open them in the name of the people. James Scullin's final election speech also focused on the coal lockout and John Brown. Quote, Intense interest has been displayed in the election campaign because things most sacred to the people are at stake. Plans to abandon federal arbitration followed swiftly on the withdrawal of the John Brown prosecution. Democracy has been stirred into action, for impartial administration of the law is one of the priceless assets of a free people. On the 12th of October, James Scullin's ALP won in a landslide, taking 46 of 75 seats in what was a House of Representatives-only election. As for Stanley Bruce, he not only lost government, 
but lost his own seat of Flinders in Victoria, beaten by 327 votes by none other than Jack Holloway, the former union leader his government had fined. This was the first time a sitting Prime Minister had lost his seat, and it wouldn't happen again until 2007 when John Howard was ousted from Benelong by Maxine McHugh. The Labor Daily's headline on the 14th of October read, quote, Australia is ours. James Scullin was sworn in on the 22nd of October 1929. Here's the headline of an article dated the following day from Melbourne newspaper The Argus. Quote, More frenzied finance scenes on Wall Street. Losses worst in history. Those catastrophic losses only got worse and more historic over the coming days until they culminated with Black Tuesday on the 29th of October. Australians didn't know it then, but this Wall Street crash was going to trigger the Great Depression. What they did know pretty quickly was that their new Labor Prime Minister James Scullin was suddenly pretty quiet about ending the lockout and locking up. John Brown. Instead, another conference was planned between federal and New South Wales governments, coal owners and Miners' Federation officials. In the meantime, New South Wales Premier Tom Bavin was on the offensive. On the 19th of November, he agreed with the northern owners to take control of the mines, starting with Rothbury, which would be reopened with non-union labour working for the reduced wages. The next day, he sent his despised minister, Reginald Weaver, accompanied by police superintendent Alexander Beattie, to the coalfields. Weaver's stated intention was to visit Rothbury Colliery, in particular to inspect sites where tent camps could be set up to accommodate free labourers, and to issue an ultimatum to the miners to sign on as volunteers by the 23rd of November. Told that he was unwelcome to speak to a miners' meeting at Brankston, Reginald Weaver delivered this response, quote, They have thrown out the gauntlet, so I will address them in the open air after the meeting, and we will see how many heroes are left. Then he asked the Newcastle Morning Herald man just how long these union meetings went for. He was told that one last week had lasted seven hours. I wouldn't wait that long for the king, Weaver snapped. So he sent word to the miners that he would say his piece in front of the Brankston Hotel at 5 o'clock that afternoon. About 100 miners turned up to listen to Reginald Weaver, who was literally standing on a soapbox. Gentlemen, he started. They groaned, hardly surprising given how uncivilly they'd been treated since March. That immediately put Weaver on the sarcastic offensive. Quote, I'm sorry I've called you the wrong name. You all want a tonic. Men running away when they hear the name gentleman? How extraordinary. That's wonderful. Reginald Weaver again set out the government's proposed wages and conditions and said that all responsibility rested with the miners who'd resisted all reasonable arguments. Quote, We shall work Rothbury if the heavens fall. It may be taken as absolutely certain that coal will be produced under the government plan at Rothbury. The next night in Cessnock, Reginald Weaver was back on his soapbox and a crowd gathered. When a miner suggested that they leave and people began to drift away, Weaver shouted, 
Well, I'm blowed. To think you go like a lot of sheep, it's really funny. That did get the miner's attention, and the crowd grew as he went on with his insults. Quote, I'd like to collect some samples of you fellows. I represent the zoo, and I would like to take back some new specimens. The minister said it was astounding to see grown men acting like children, that they were afraid to hear the truth and face the facts. Quote, I cannot imagine men claiming to be Democrats and Australian citizens behaving like you're behaving. Yet, it is not to be wondered at because I was worded that your discipline was so great that you had sold your individuality to the union bosses and would not allow yourself to listen to political truths or facts about the coal industry. I thought that men who claimed to be men would not allow the union bosses to drive them like hunted cattle. Despite outbursts like this, Reginald Weaver claimed he wasn't there to antagonise or embitter the men, but he was brooking absolutely no opposition. Here's what he shouted over the hecklers. Quote, If you think you can fight the government when governments are determined, you do not know your position. We will leave unionists the option to sign on until Saturday night. Whether they sign on or not, the Rothbury mine is going to produce coal. I am not going to leave Rothbury until that mine is working. Rothbury will work and coal will be produced there in the very near future. There is no need for you to jeer. We are going to open Rothbury. With those fighting words, the battle lines were drawn. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Part two of this episode will be released on the 16th of December, which marks the 90th anniversary of the Battle for Rothbury. For more information about this and other Forgotten Australia stories, check out the website ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.